Welcome back to Jobmakers, a podcast of Pioneer Institute and the Immigrant Learning Center. And I'm your host, Denzel Mohammed. The ingenuity of immigrants is boundless, and Americans throughout history have a lot to be grateful for when it comes to people who move here and develop innovative ideas. From Levi Strauss's idea for using metal rivets positioned at the points of strain in the pants he invented for miners, what today we call our 501s, to Helen Grenier, who wanted to manufacture robots anyone could afford and co-designed the first version of the Roomba vacuum cleaner. Immigrant entrepreneurs improve our lives with their ingenuity. Sandro Catanzaro started several businesses in his native Peru, but had no idea he'd end up helping NASA go to Mars or that he'd use that same technology to plan and buy video ad campaigns. Now head of publisher services strategy for Roku, which acquired the company he founded, DataZoo, in 2019, Mr. Catanzaro is an emblem of ingenuity and inventiveness. His demand-side platform, device graph technology, and analytics platform help accelerate Roku's ad tech roadmap and ability to serve a wide array of advertisers. But he's not done yet. Welcome, Sandro Catanzaro, and tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now. Um, so I am Sandro Catanzaro. I run a strategy for the publisher services, advertiser services uh, team at Roku. And uh, about Roku. So uh, our company provides consumers with access to uh, the best entertainment, news, educational content from nearly an infinite selection of uh, content available. And that goes directly to their home uh, through streaming TV. And about the product. So I personally work with content owners and uh, people who, who are like Warner Media, NBC, CBS, Hulu, to help them reach more consumers by making their content ad supported. Uh, also, uh, we provide consumers with a great uh, TV experience, uh, ensuring that the ad load is limited. They don't see that many ads. And finally, advertisers uh, who want to reach those consumers can reach only the consumers they want to reach without uh, creating waste and and, hit, and and showing ads to people who are not in the target, uh, target population. So now more to the specifics, what we did at DataZoo, we created technology, we applied technology we had developed at MIT to help take decisions very fast. And that technology was applied to select which ad to show to each consumer. So that technology initially was applied to uh, advertising on the web. Eventually, we expanded to advertising in mobile devices and video ads, and eventually we, we, we went into TV advertisement. So within TV advertisement, uh, we can select exactly which ads should be shown to every consumer in real time. And that was uh, the underlying thesis by which, uh, which drove the acquisition of my, co- my company, DataZoo, by Roku. I want to talk a lot more about DataZoo and what that experience was like, um, but I first want to get to know you. So you grew up in Peru, and uh, once you moved to the U.S., you had quite a journey, I would say. Um, but most Americans don't know what it's like growing up in Peru. So, you know, tell us what that experience was like. Well, Lima's in the coast, and so right now we are in summer, so people are going to the beach. You kind of probably go to the beach almost every weekend. 
And when you when I was a kid, probably sometimes daily. I mean, I wasn't in school. Um, and uh, when I went to school and at um, uh, was a religious uh, high, um, actually it's a religious school. Um, these were uh, Catholic priests, French Catholic priests. So it was a very interesting environment because this is not. I mean, it was. Uh, um, a mix of um, the Catholic content, but on the other hand, a lot of social understanding of what's happening around you and what is the impact of what you are doing and that you should do things that are actually are good for the, you know, for, for society in general. So uh, many people from my school are either in politics or well, maybe there's also a few entrepreneurs as well. And uh, yeah, that was a really good environment. I mean, I learned quite a lot there. And so you went straight to university after high school. What yes. was your parents' attitude towards education? Well, very much uh, in favor. <laughs> so uh, it was expected in my household, you'll do well in school. However, it wasn't a pressure cooker environment. You know, my father's business. So I, I, I grew up around machinery and I did like that a lot. So that was a good inspiration for me and eventually became a mechanical engineer. So you said your father was an entrepreneur? Yes, he was. Did that run in your family? or And what impact did that have on you as an entrepreneur? Well, yes, it does run in the family. I liked not only the freedom, but also the, cre the creativity aspect of it, that you can actually think what to do and how should it be done and move forward and uh, the ability to change the world, right? The ability to make something out of nothing. I think losing the fear to be in a situation that is not what you expected, and losing the fear of making decisions, that's probably the encouragement we, we got as, as kids. So you also took a risk by moving to another country. And I said, you said you moved to Argentina first, and then eventually you moved to the U.S. Why did you come here? And tell us in, in very real terms, not just as a student or a business owner, just as a person, what was it like moving here? So um, at that time, so after coming back from Argentina, I, 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 was, I, mean, I was in entrepreneurship in Peru for a number of years. I own a company in, in making filtering tea bags and own a company uh, making industrial machinery, but I was finding- uh, But you also owned a bar, isn't that right? It, that is true. <laughs> I also have, and the bar still exists. I mean, I, 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 by training, I am a mechanical engineer and I think I'm a good one, all right? And I did not have the same, um, knowledge about how to launch a business as I did about how to work on with steel and, and structures. So I wanted to get a more formal education in, in business and I applied to schools and I was uh, lucky to go into MIT. Uh, so I, initially it was expected to be an MBA and uh, I, I came to Sloan uh, here in, in town in Boston. And as I was doing that, I, again, always an engineer. I started taking other, other, you know, extra courses in uh, astronautics and aeronautics, and it was like, well, I'll just take an optative, and one became two, 
And eventually it so happened that uh, there was a project that was uh, that MIT participated in and NASA uh, was supporting this project. And this was uh, when we, in year 2004, 2005, the new project to go send people to Mars. So I got involved in that project and ended up getting a second master's. And that was, that was great, right? Uh, so I got a second master's in astronautics besides the business, the business degree. And uh, the other benefit was that uh, MIT is great in this way. Uh, my second master's paid for the whole career. So I, uh, that was really, really great. And um, so our project that we did for NASA ended up being uh, the seed for the company when we eventually started here in Boston. I remember you telling me about being in Back Bay and, and, and asking for directions and someone actually gave you a map, right? That was exactly, that was super fun. So we are arriving in Boston and it's my wife and I, and we have our suitcases and we're trying to find our way to this hotel we'll have to go. And we're in Back Bay and, uh, and I stopped in one of these uh, news, newspapers, uh, little kiosks, and I asked for directions. And the guy says, well, the place you're going is like this way and that way. And he opens a map and he says, well, here is the place you're going. You have to walk this way and that way. And back in the day, there were no GPSs, right? So I take the map and, and I, he says, yes, take it, take it. Okay, thank you. But I'm thinking at this point, man, this guy may have these maps, like, you know, and he gives them away. And then I look in the back. The map was, I think, it wasn't a lot of money. It was like $8. But he took $8 from his business and gave a map to me. And that was, uh, I mean, that was a, quite an impression for us. I mean, at that point, we knew everything was going to be okay. How did you go from NASA to high tech in the Seaport District? <laughs> yes. So initially, we've made this project for NASA, as I mentioned. And this was an interesting uh, project. So typically, uh, NASA works with the large aerospace conglomerates, the Northrops, the Boeings. And uh, at, the MIT, at MIT, uh, my professor had uh, the foresight of pitching NASA that they actually should hire MIT as if it were uh, one of these uh, aerospace conglomerates for this stage of aviation and creation of the stations for, for how to go to Mars. So NASA at the beginning wasn't as receptive, but then one thing that, again, this, this guy was really good explaining how to do things and uh, Ed Crowley, he said, you know, you are not only investing uh, in getting ideas, and we are not linked to any type of hardware, so we have no uh, inclination to one thing or another. One will explore all the options in a very rational way, but you are also investing in uh, who are gonna be the operators of these systems down the road. These students you are supporting with your money will eventually work for NASA or one of these aerospace companies. So it's actually a great thing that you are doing. And actually that was well received and we got the money, we got funding, we developed the project, and. As a difference to any of the other companies that were pitching the one or two ideas they had based on the hardware they had developed, uh, being the MIT team, what we developed and we, 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 we uh, created was a way to discover all the ways they were available to go to Mars. 
So we discovered that there are 1,152 ways to go to Mars. That's all the ways there are. You cannot find more ways. <laughs> so either they're trying to go in a different way, we'll have an orbit that is not possible or a rocket that is not you know, uh, powerful enough, or you may not have the time to uh, make the fueling in Mars that needs to be made. And one of them is the one that uh, is in the movie, The Martian. So that was one of the uh, ways to go to Mars that we had. Um, so that was great. And NASA loved the project. And many of our ideas were incorporated in what eventually became uh, the, the, the mission for Mars that we're doing today. And uh, at that point, I, I, you know, I graduated. I went to work for Bain & Company doing consulting. But I was always coming back to MIT to find out whether we were doing something about the software we created and these ideas we had for Mars exploration and exploring combinations of, of, of objects. So eventually we decided, well, let's try to think if there is an, a, an application that can, you know, can be a commercial application. And we decided to start a company. And the initial, you know, the first year of the company was exploring different markets what can we do with this technology? Where should we apply this technology? And it was uh, a lot of trials and we explored markets like how to rearrange the schedule of an, uh, of an airline, you know, an, an, uh, an airline, right? And when they, the, 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 the schedule is disrupted by, by, by a storm, like a snowstorm. Uh, how to arrange furniture in a room? Um, how to uh, deal with um, algorithmic execution in the stock market. But eventually we saw that the, the internet and the market, you know, in general, finding uh, applications in the internet was, and this was year 2007, 2008. So it was very early. Uh, finding uh, an application on the internet was going to be very, uh, very interesting. So we started looking for possibilities and we, we discovered that targeting ads in the internet and do that in a very efficient and fast way wasn't a solved problem. So we uh, creating, created software to do that selection very quick. And we pitched it uh, to back in the day, the leaders in the market were Yahoo. Yes, Yahoo was in the market and Google. And they both, both founded thought, by both founded by immigrants. Both founded by immigrants, <laughs> and uh, and surprising to us, I mean, this, we were still, you know, probably at this point, six or eight people. Uh, we were able to convince both to open a market to create create auctions in real time for ads. At that point, that didn't exist before, and eight months later opens the real-time exchange for ads uh, that was launched by, by Google. Your company eventually sort of actualized itself and, and, <clears throat> and had such wide-reaching impact. Um, what was that like and what was it like uh, when Roku approached you? We, we saw that the natural, I mean, since we started the company, we, we always thought TV was the most interesting market. It's at the end of the day, the market where I mean, consumers spend quite a bit of time watching TV and is, is very persuasive. Uh, but initially, obviously, everybody was laughing at us, right? For us to even get to show banner ads in, in websites was, was even a success at that point, very early. 
So uh, as the company continued being successful and expanding, we were able to get closer and closer to these TV ads. Uh, and, and the other trend that happened is also TV became closer and closer to digital. So as everybody knows, uh, linear TV with the bunny ears antenna and broadcast was the way TV was consumed before, but now the future of TV is through streaming. And streaming is basically an internet access to TV where ads are selected in real time and our technology is, is very useful. So as much as we wanted to go in the direction of TV, TV also wanted to come in the direction of digital. And uh, we, uh, we have, uh, I mean, if you think about the TV market and streaming, uh, obviously the leader is Roku. So for us, as we started talking with Roku, we saw so many areas of alignment and so many areas where we were thinking along the same lines of what to do and how to do things. That was, uh, was a very easy decision to kind of decide to kind of join, join Roku and, and work together uh, developing uh, advertising for the future. It was almost natural for us to expand from one way to another way to another way to show us. As these different ways to show us became digital, the expansion was Obviously, there was an adapter on the outside, but internally, the engine is the same engine we created in 2009. It's the same thing. Now, this is all about big data. You're looking at a lot of data, and it's helping to shape uh, what you're doing. Some of Boston's largest employees in advertising, like uh, Digitas, are also known for their very data-heavy approach to marketing. Can you talk a little bit about how big data is shaping the industry? One of the big issues was, well, we need to build a data center and we didn't have the money. So what we did is we used a very new technology at the time. Uh, there was this company, uh, Amazon, and they had this very early thing that was called AWS. And there was an experiment they were making to make available resources for rent. So you could rent a computer for an hour. And we said, well, let's rent computers because we cannot buy them. So, and this was probably AWS had like six months and it was an experiment pretty much. They didn't know if it was going to continue, but for us, it was a good, a good way to kind of continue moving forward. And, uh, and that's how we started with big data. So there were computers and those computers could be arranged in a cluster. So for us, bigger and bigger data sets were never a problem. So bigger and bigger locks with more and more automated machine learning which at that point, I don't sure it was called machine learning. It was called, you know, probably was called machine learning. And I remember we were using MapReduce and eventually we used Hive. And it always was the same idea. We'll get the data and automatically clean it and train algorithms, select which is the best one, and then use those to buy ads in real time. The fact that you can extract a nugget of insight from a lot of data and be cost efficient at doing that, I think has changed the, you know, has changed not only advertising and marketing, but has changed many industries. What we do as big data is to guess that you may be interested in that BMW because, for example, you have been uh, looking over Italian recipes. And why Italian recipes at BMW have any relationship, we don't know. That's something the machine found that people who eat Italian food and is cooking in their house may want to buy a car like that, right? And, and that's okay. 
And that's what the machine finds. And it may be a very weak inference, but the machine is patient enough to find it. And even though it's not actually uh, something that you will find um, very uh, intuitive, right? It may not be something that, that is obvious. And give me some more insight into these trends in marketing. I noted that um, employment and marketing in Massachusetts actually spiked by over 40% since the Great Recession. Do you have any idea what's driving that trend? Boston is in a really interesting position geographically. So we're close enough to New York that we have access to that market, which is kind of one of the places where most of the advertising is purchased and sold. But we're far enough that we can come back and think about the problem. So in some ways provides us with enough understanding of the problem through talking with a client who's maybe the advertiser or maybe the ad agency, and also enough separation and closeness to great talent through the uni many universities that are on down that allow to dissect the problem, think hard about it, and do something about how to address that problem. Boston is obviously a hub for young, bright people who are ambitious, uh, who have a lot of drive and talent. But that talent for you has not always been easy to find when during your time at DataZoo. What was it like finding the right kind of skill set and where did you find them? Yeah, in general, um, I remember since we started the company, I think we probably have an average of between five and 10 open positions almost all the time throughout. Right, and we were always looking to hire either somebody from the engineering team, somebody from the data science team, uh, somebody who can talk with our clients the right way and ask them uh, what the problems are, how to implement those in the platform. So you were looking for team members from abroad. Uh, that means we're looking H1 for team members from anywhere, anywhere. That I mean, the position was open. Anyone, anyone, and everywhere. People could come, and we certainly try to have people, and you know, and we have many people from abroad coming to work in the company. Um, and it has been, uh, it, it always was the case that different people bring different perspectives. I mean, uh, I, at some point, I was running the data science team, and it was the United Nations, right? <laughs> we had people from all the different nationalities, and everyone has a different perspective. And, and brings a different point of view. But do restrictive immigration policies um, hinder that kind of uh, development of companies? In two different ways. So first I'm gonna speak about myself. <clears throat> so when I graduated, I initially the plan was to come here to study for a couple of years and then go back. Frankly, I felt that wasn't ideal. I mean. Think of it, NASA is paying for my studies. I got an MBA. I won't say for free, but I got an MBA for a very low cost. And, uh, and of course, I mean, MIT also was a great, I mean, supported me very, very well. So I, I felt I owed something. I should pay back somehow. It was the right thing to do. So I tried to look for work. And the first thing, first place for me to look for work was NASA. And I went to NASA and I have an internship with NASA. I was, I mean, I, they like what I was doing and the internship ends and say, well, 
Can I work for full time? And they told me, no, you can't. You are not a US citizen. You cannot work here. Okay. Uh, so I, I started looking for work. I, again, I wanted to stay at least a couple of years to pay back some of what I have received. And it was hard. No, very few companies were able to, uh, to support me with an H-1B visa. So uh, I was lucky uh, and I applied to, to also uh, work as consultant. Uh, and I really liked what Bain and Company was doing and I started working with them. But that was one of the few jobs that had this H-1B sponsorship at the time. Um, and then as we were about to start the company, um, again, this is a startup, right? How a startup can support a student or well, an H-1B visa uh, as a founder. So it was also quite uh, networking and racking at the beginning, right? Uh, whether my startup would be able to be the sponsor of my visa as H-1B. And also at the same time, this is a startup, right? Startups are risky. So I am tying my, I mean, I staying in the country to my startup not going belly up for reasons that be independent of me doing a good or bad job in, you know, in the company. But eventually, obviously the company did well and I was, uh, I was, it was possible for, I mean, they, 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 my, my sponsorship worked and, and then it stayed. I say two ways. The second way is we did hire, I remember, a great candidate for the data science team. And this was, uh, a lady, she was a German national. I think she was a PhD graduate in Germany. She was great. And she not only understood statistics and machine learning and data in general, but also she was smart and she knew how to apply to advertising. So great fit. We uh, sent her the, you know, the, the position and she accepted and whatnot and she applied for the h1 visa and she wasn't in the lottery she did, was not selected so we lost the candidate and we lost you know we lost a great uh, great great talent we see it with for instance farm workers where they they've adjusted the numbers and yet for great needs like this you know several years ago needing data scientists and not being able to have that right it's to me, it's almost crazy. How do we not see how it shoots ourselves? We are shooting ourselves in, the, in our own foot by not having the right policies to allow people who are interested in coming and work to just come and work. Uh, and in many cases, it's people who are already here and working. And uh, and as you say, bu already building a life. Building a life, in my case, building a company, giving employment to many people. Right, so uh, I, I think we should think not what is expedient politically, but what is the way we want to create a country for the next 30 years. Uh, Sandro Catanzaro, it was really, really wonderful talking to you. Um, and I think you're just such an interesting person overall. Um, and I can't wait to see what you do next um, as you continue with your entrepreneurial spirit here in America. It's gonna be uh, it's gonna be great. Uh, it's it's gonna be it's a great adventure that I that I can say.
you like what you're hearing and want more of it, become a JobMakers sponsor. Learn more by reaching out to me at denzil at jobmakerspodcast.org. That's D-E-N-Z-I-L. So happy that you joined us for this week's inspiring story of another immigrant entrepreneur. Join us again next Thursday at noon. I'm Denzel Mohammed, and thank you for listening to JobMakers. Thank you.